By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. Did he even ask what the money was for? No. He was thinking of his payoff. We all want money, he tells me. This from Tadashi Sasaki, second-hand car salesman who managed to find himself in the middle of a laundering scheme aimed at washing the funds stolen from Bangladesh Bank by North Korea's so-called cyber warriors, known as the Lazarus Group. Something we thought we'd introduce to the KYC Decoded podcast is a book club, where we'll speak with the authors and readers and reflect on the stories, themes and lessons we can apply to the world of KYC and AML. We're going to kick off with The Lazarus Heist, and I'm happy to say we've managed to get some time with the author, BBC podcast host, and arguably the world's leading investigative journalist on The Lazarus Group, Jeff White. Intriguing as I find it, the hacking is actually fairly straightforward once you know what you're doing, and fairly quick. Why did they wait a year to transfer the money out? Money laundering, they needed to line up the escape routes. So increasingly, for me, the really interesting stuff about this is how do you get the money out? And that's all about money laundering. In one fell swoop, you've got 625 million. On the other hand, it's all traceable. So that is now sitting in Ethereum wallets out on the internet that are the most surveilled Ethereum wallets in the world. Everybody's watching that. (laughs) Russia has a very well-developed cybercrime economy. To what extent will that cybercrime economy now be targeted and used to evade those sanctions and so on? Well, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Jeff White. Jeff, those that haven't come across your work or or seen you on stage like I have, do you want to maybe just give a line or two on, on yourself and your work? Sure. So I'm Jeff White. Uh, I'm an author and investigative journalist. I was the co-host of a podcast called The Lazarus Heist. I'm the author of the book of the same name, and that's about how North Korea became a cyber superpower and the attendant fraud and money laundering network that surrounds it. Fantastic. And what initially got you interested in North Korea and cybercrime specifically? Because this hasn't just been a one or two years. This has been a long part many, of your career. Years, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was working at Channel 4 News. I started getting interested in cybercrime there because it was just, it was on the rise. You could see it was on the rise. Um, the North Korean example was really interesting. One of the big, big hacks that's sort of legendary in the world of tech security is the Bangladesh Bank heist, which I'm sure we'll go on to in the course of the podcast. That heist is, is, is remarkable for a whole bunch of reasons. But over the years, the attribution for that heist has come around to North Korea. So the accusation is North Korea's government hackers carried out that hack. Now, not only is that a stunning amount of money to go after, they tried to steal a billion dollars, but also it raises this question of how does a country where most of the 25 million inhabitants don't even have access to the internet recruit and train and, and execute hackers at such a level that they can go after a national bank? That's a really thrilling story. And also the way that story is executed and the, the sort of pattern of it and the plot of it feels a lot like a Hollywood heist movie. It does feel like a bunch of hackers have watched a Ocean's Eleven and thought, well, we'll do that, but with computers. Yeah, absolutely. I was- Thank you for sending me an advanced copy. I really enjoyed the read over the past uh, week or two. And as you said, at certain times, it does feel like you're, as you visualise the words that you're reading, is, is that it is like one of these films. 
The Lazarus Group is the the name given to this this North Korean cyber unit or cyber warriors. I think they're described as at different points. How long have you been investigating them specifically? It'd be at least five years um, because the Bangladesh Bank case goes back to 2016. And even before then, there was the attack, of course, on Sony Pictures Entertainment, also allegedly carried out by the Lazarus Group, North Korea's government hackers, which would be 2014, late 2014. So it goes back and the attribution came, came about fairly quickly for North Korea after that. So at least five years in the Bangladesh Bank case and, and a few more years on, on, on the Sony Pictures case. Yeah. And the work you've done, the articles, the investigations, the, uh, the podcast, the BBC World Series podcast, you've done all of that work. What made this the right time to turn, turn it all into a book? Um, well, cybercrime is really interesting from that point of view in that you have, you have the initial bang, you have the, the hack, it often these days goes public, either the hackers make it public on the dark web or journalists find out about it. Sometimes the victims come forward and admit what's happened. Sometimes it's inescapable that they have to do that because the damage is so bad they can't avoid it. Then you have a period of investigation while law enforcement and tech security companies go in and try and work out what the hell happened. Then later on, you get the results of that. You get the report that comes out. You get, in the case of the North Koreans, criminal indictments from the US government, which go into chapter and verse on what actually happened. And that's when you really start to piece things together. So frustratingly in, in cybercrime, I think it's one of the reasons it's difficult to make on the day news out of cybercrime. It's often only in the rearview mirror that you understand what's happened. And so suddenly now, after all this time, we've really got chapter and verse, certainly in terms of what the Americans believe happened uh, at Bangladesh Bank. Uh, we've also had other criminal indictments that have come out against North Korean state hackers. And suddenly you can put all these pieces together and join it together in a row and, and create a story that makes sense to readers and is a compelling read because it covers all the angles. Initially with a hack, you struggle to get it over to the, the, the readers and the listeners and so on because you're just saying, well, there's been a thing. We don't really know what will happen, but, but there's been a thing. Over the years, you suddenly get to be able to explain that story and say, well, here's what actually happened and here's all the different steps. And so that felt like the perfect time to kind of encapsulate this all in a book. And of course, North Korea have been they haven't stopped after that Bangladesh bank case in 2016, you know, the subsequent hacks adding up to something like $2 billion is the estimation uh, uh, laid at North Korea's door. So, you know, it's a good time to kind of revisit that and work out where this threats come from. Yeah. And one of the things I took from the, the book is that they seem to be working very much like a agile methodology startup, whether that's in London or Silicon Valley or, or anywhere else in the world. They, they have learned from each hack and improved their processes and tactics, it seems. So, has there been, are they slowing down? Is it plateauing or is it actually ramping up still? I think it's ramping up. Um, and troubling where, troublingly, where it's ramping up is in a cryptocurrency, I'm sure we'll come on to, uh, and particularly fringe areas of cryptocurrency, the devolved finance area of cryptocurrency is absolutely huge. I mean, Chainalysis put out some research, one of the cryptocurrency uh, tracing companies, others exist, uh, I should say. But Chainalysis's uh, report was really interesting because they looked at these devolved finance organizations, which are, even among cryptocurrency, which is still fairly fringe, Default finance is, is at the fringe of that. And that's where all the activity is going on uh, around the, the Lazarus Group and the North Korean hackers, according to folks at Chainalysis. And so they're, they're plowing a furrow and, and they're getting more and more success. And they're, they're, they're pulling in millions and millions of dollars from these organisations. It's absolutely astonishing. I'm, one of the, the things I, I took away from reading the book is when you talk about some of the people that have been identified, is that you can sort of feel uh, that they are the enemy. But actually, as you go on to describe, actually, they're leading pretty tough lives as well. It's, it's the yeah. people behind the, the hacker that exactly. that's the real, real concern here. Yeah. Speaking of the hacking, if we go a little bit more into 
lessons that our audience of KYC, AML professionals, anti-financial crime professionals can take away. Would you like to talk a little bit about how the hackers typically gain entry? Because there was definitely a couple of themes um, that, that they might want to think about as they, they consider what controls they would put in place to protect their organisations. Yeah, this is, this is both the, the depressing bit, but also the good news bit, I suppose, of the story. You know, having covered cybercrime for more than 15 years, both North Korean and other cybercrime, the, the method of entry, the, the modus operandi is depressingly familiar. It's phishing emails. It's all about phishing emails. It is the weapon of choice for pretty much every hacking group. Simply because you've got most goes at it. You know, if you've got a thousand employees, that's a thousand email addresses, that's a thousand goes. If you're trying to attack the, the company's computer server, well, it's one server running one type of software. It will have different applications sitting on top of it. But, you know, you, you've got one sort of hard target to reach. If you've got a thousand employees, you've got a thousand fairly soft targets to reach. And so that's the, that's the way in. So it's phishing emails, depressingly still working, still ha- achieving results for the hackers. But the, the sort of new methodology that we started to come across is using other social media things like LinkedIn, for example. Okay. So the classic at the moment is you get a LinkedIn invite, you know, Alex, do you want to speak at a conference? You know, we've heard your podcast. It's great. You get into a conversation on LinkedIn. The profile looks good. It looks fleshed out. They've worked at places that you would recognize. Potentially they have connections on LinkedIn that you would recognize. The conversation then goes on to WhatsApp, a bit more chat. And then it's like, oh, I'll email you the, the Word document that has the agenda for the conference you're going to be speaking at or the job offer, the juicy job offer. Here's the job spec. You open up the Word document. There's a little button that says click to enable content. You enable the content. That's it. You're infected. So the grooming process of social media is a lot more involved, not long term, uh, more long term than the, than the phishing email simply arriving in your inbox. But the success rate on that, I suspect, is going to be higher because you feel you've trusted this person. Of course. And, and they've got a good offer for you. They've got a job. They've got a conference. They've got a gig. So you, you're more likely to open it. Have, have you seen any that you've received and you thought, ah, I know this? So, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had a few dodgy looking emails, but I have to say, I, I, I touch wood, I don't think I've had anything deliberately targeted and specifically targeted. Never say never, but so far it doesn't seem to have, have happened. They, they know you're wise to it, as you're writing the books about yeah. it. Thing, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's probably a whole other podcast, but identity verification for social media, it sounds yeah, like it might yeah. be helpful, but <laughs> we'll, we'll come to that another time. In the case of the Bangladesh uh, bank heist or, or theft uh, that the Lazarus Group uh, conducted, they picked a particular day. Mm. Um, and I think that has some interesting learnings for those that build controls. So I don't know if you could maybe talk a little bit mm. about what happened there and, and yeah. why it mattered. Yeah. So, so the targeting of Bangladesh Bank was fascinating from a timing point of view. Um, in the heist movies, just to go back to the Hollywood comparison, you know, if you're going to rob the bank, you'll do it on a weekend when there's nobody there. And there's, there's loads of films where they target it on, I don't know, New Year's Eve when, you know, there's loads of fireworks going off to cover the sound of the explosions, that kind of thing. So the hackers did, did one, two or three steps better actually than that. For a start, they hacked into Bangladesh Bank on Thursday evening. Now in Bangladesh Bank, some of your listeners will know, it's in Bangladesh, the country, the weekend is Friday and Saturday. So immediately you're going to have a skeleton staff in the bank on Friday, Saturday, who are going to struggle to keep up with the, with the hacking. And that's exactly what happened. The staff came in on Friday and Saturday, noticed some things amiss, but weren't really sure what was going on. The full team only came back in on Sunday. So immediately the hackers are given themselves a bit of an advantage. Second thing about this is, Whilst the bank they attached was, attacked was in Bangladesh, the account they were moving the money out of was in New York. So it's Thursday evening in Bangladesh when they attacked the bank, but it's Thursday morning in New York. So they start sending requests through to New York saying, oh, please can we withdraw the money? Those requests look like they come from Bangladesh Bank because the hackers are in Bangladesh Bank. New York obviously has got all of Thursday to keep working on this and starts transferring the money out. 
So you've got a situation where New York's awake, Bangladesh is asleep. The money then gets transferred to Manila, capital of the Philippines, where on Monday in that 2016, it was Lunar New Year holiday. So it's a bank holiday on the Monday. So the cash gets transferred into Manila. By Sunday, Monday, Bangladesh is awake, New York's awake, but they're contacting Manila where there's a skeleton staff in the bank and having trouble reaching people. So they played off three different time zones against each other across five days. Absolutely astonishing. And by the end of the five days, when on Tuesday, everybody's finally in the office and sorting this out, the money had gone through that bank in Manila and out the other side. Absolutely astonishing. It's effectively a full working week before (laughs) they're up against a genuine opposition. Yeah. Yeah. And the phrase that I sort of came to when I was preparing my notes for this conversation was it's 24-7 crime versus 24-5 controls. That's re- it's a really good phrase, that. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, yeah. we talked offline, you said maybe it's 8-5, yeah. which is <laughs> yeah. a fair point as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but it is something I think our audience and, and their bosses and, and their colleagues will need to think about is yeah. that, yeah, we should all have our time off, work-life yeah. balance, absolutely. But you ha- need to have enough resource or yeah. systems yeah. because- people attacking you aren't going to stop just because yeah. yeah we've all agreed that we'll go home at five or six or whenever you go home exactly that. And, and to be honest the number of hacks that happen on a friday evening it, it is peak hacking time okay uh, in fact sky news i think made a made a, a career for a while out of just keeping an eye on hacks on friday night oh, right. when the anonymous group was rampaging around the internet they would yeah. tend to hack stuff on friday nights so the sky news was always thinking oh friday there'll be a breaking news story on friday night when things are quiet <laughs> we'll have a story to run but it's interesting it's it's you're absolutely right. You can't work. Nobody can work 24-7. So you need automated controls in place. And I should say, one of the ways they got money out of Bangladesh Bank was using SWIFT, something your listeners will be well familiar with, the interbank transfer system. One of the controls, as I understand it, you can now put around SWIFT is to limit the time windows during which transfers can be made. There's no reason why at two in the morning in Bangladesh, somebody should be able to access SWIFT and transfer money. You don't need to do that. So you can compartmentalize your sort of systems capabilities. Uh, for that, you certainly can do that. Um, but, but inevitably you are going to end up having a, a combination of human control and automated control because the humans can't be in the office 24 seven. Absolutely. That, that control with Swift, that time limitation or time boxing, is that a result of the Bangladesh bank, uh, theft or, or was that already available when they weren't using it? Do you know? I, I don't know whether it was available before, but what I do know is subsequent to the Bangladesh bank heist because obviously Swift got a lot of attention as a mm. result of that. I should say, I, I don't think there was no security control as far as I'm aware in Swift that got breached. If you're in the bank's computer systems and you navigate towards Swift, the Swift system just thinks you're a bank employee. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think it's fair to lay that sort of blame at, at Swift, but obviously they got a lot of heat after this and it raised a lot of concern because Bangladesh Bank wasn't the only Swift attack. There were multiple other ones. And in a way that makes sense. If you want to break into a bank and transfer money out, you're going to use Swift. But of course their name got you know, mentioned in the press. Subsequent to that, they also started working with organisations, banks to uh, put controls in. And if the controls weren't being used to sort of educate banks to say, look, here are the controls you can use with Swift. Have you thought about implementing this? Have you thought of implementing that? Two-factor authentication, controls on when the transactions can be done, etc. So Swift did a, a huge amount as a result of it. And I think banks have probably got more secure as a result. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the, the hackers are going to learn and they're going to iterate and they're going to be agile, so we have to be as well, or arguably we need to be more so than they are, um, in fairness. One question that I, I had, as I was reading the book, it was sort of a start I found really helpful because it gave me background on North Korea that I've never had before. I've always sort of known there's stuff there, but I've never had to look at it deeply. And suddenly the, it made a lot more sense. 
then we talked about hacking and I, I think at one point you even break down a, a sequence of code, which is really interesting <laughs> yeah. uh, as someone who's not, not a coder. I was like, oh, that makes sense. I'm uh, so glad you said yeah. that. I, when I sent it to the publisher, she said, oh, I'm not sure whether this makes sense to me. And I thought, oh, should I put it in then or not? So I'm really, gl- I'm so glad to hear that. That's great. Yeah. Um, but then as I got through the sort of middle and then the second half of the book, it to me, and maybe it's just my bias of this is what I work on, but it's the successes and failures of AML controls. It's, yeah. an, it's a book yeah. about money laundering. It really is. It, it, the hacking, intriguing as I find it, the hacking is actually, I won't say easy, but it's certainly fairly straightforward once you know what you're doing and fairly quick once you know what you're doing. So I think the process from the phishing email arriving at Bangladesh Bank to them having access to the key systems they needed would have taken a few weeks, maybe months. Why did they wait a year to transfer the money out? Money laundering. They needed to line up the escape routes. So increasingly, for me, the really interesting stuff about this, about the hacking, financial hacking side is how do you get the money out? And that's all about money laundering. Of the podcast series we did, there were 10 episodes. I think at least three or four of them, arguably five, were about money laundering, not yeah. about hacking. Yeah. I mean, the line I often come back to is uh, all crime that isn't emotional, isn't crime of passion, is financial crime. Because you, <laughs> you only commit it so that you can get yes. some yep. gain. Cash out, yeah. At which point you then need to money launder, which is a financial crime. Yes. And yeah, I think there's sometimes this idea of cybercrime that belongs to the uh, IT department. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the initial defense, but actually, if we're going to stop money laundering, that is now one of the main yeah. sources. Um, and fraud's often, you know, has gone online yes. mostly now oh, yes, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As I read that second half of the book, it was sort of a tale. There was some success as well as failures of the controls, weren't mm, there? At, mm. the, at the banks, at the casinos, at the crypto exchanges. Yeah. Would you maybe talk around some of the things that stopped Lazarus Group getting yeah. their billion dollars out. They got money, but they didn't yes, get all yes. of it. So they went after $951 million. And in the end, it, to the Philippines, they got $81 million. And even in the Philippines, they started to lose money to this money laundering network. So they would have ended up in the end with tens of millions of dollars. I have to say, from my knowledge of North Korean society, limited as it is, if, if you promise Kim Jong-un a billion dollars and you deliver tens of millions, I, I think that might've been squeaky bum time for some of those, some of those hackers. I'm not <laughs> sure. But um, the reason they didn't get the 951 million was really interesting. And it goes back to this thing of automated controls versus human controls. So when they tried to transfer the money out of the bank in New York, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, um, they were going to transfer it to these accounts they set up in the Philippines in Manila. They could have chosen any bank in Manila, any bank. There must be thousands of banks in Manila. They chose this one bank that was in a place called Jupiter Street. Mm. And that one word in that one bank cost them tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, because unknown to them, Jupiter had been flagged by the New York Fed um, as the name of a sanctioned Iranian ship. And so anything that had Jupiter on it, any transaction that had Jupiter on it, just got flagged you know, yeah. automatically. Then a New York Fed staffer looks at these transactions and goes, hang on, Bangladesh appears to be trying to empty its entire account of 951 million. Let's knock back some of these transactions. Yeah. And so a lot of the transactions didn't get through. What's interesting is um, one of the transactions that went through didn't go to the Philippines. It went actually to Sri Lanka. It was a payment of $20 million to Sri Lanka. And that payment got stopped as well because, again, a staffer in the bank looked at it and said, $20 million is a lot of money. Who's sending $20 million? And then they looked at the payee name and the payee name was spelt wrongly. So, again, a spelling mistake cost the hackers $20 million. (laughs) But, but what's interesting about that is there's a mixture there, isn't there, of automated controls and human controls. And, and that's a perfect example of how, for me, defence in depth isn't just about having multiple technological defences in depth. It's te- te- defence in depth for me is automated plus human. I don't think you can have the one or the other. Yeah, I think it's about getting them to do the right jobs mm. for their particular skill set. 
The interesting <laughs> about the Jupiter example that I was reading the book was in, in our industry, the, the cry and the sort of the bane of most people's lives are false positives. And in this case, it actually stopped. <laughs> yes. It was actually very helpful. So yeah. I don't know how many examples of that there are, but it, it did make me laugh. That it was yeah. sort of a uh, ironic false positive that, uh, that ended up helping this analyst or this investigator stop a oh, lot of the payments. I mean, yes, because it wasn't, it was flagged for the wrong way. Yes, it's yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. The other thing was in the casinos, they, they used the Philippines as I understood it, because at the time they had not yet introduced AML controls exactly. yeah. and they have now done since because mm-hmm. the Philippines did seem to be quite embarrassed that this had happened on, on their turf. Yeah. There's a big question around sort of source of funds, source of wealth in many industries. I know a uh, mutual friend, Oliver Bullough, will talk about it in real estate sector, mm-hmm. for instance, and yeah. how many properties in London are owned by people that maybe shouldn't mm-hmm. uh, own them. But in this case, I think that the concierge, I can't remember the exact job title, I think it was a guy called Tony Lau. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, the VIP sort of host at the, he, at the casino. You, yeah. you interviewed him, right? And he was going, no, I had these suspicions. I knew this wasn't, <laughs> ro- this is strange. Yeah, yeah. And he did tell people, but there wasn't anything that would force his bosses to go and then get people in. They did eventually. Mm. It's tricky, it's tricky, yeah. So, so basically after, the, the, after they transferred the money, Bangladesh Bank's money from New York, they transferred it to this bank in the Philippines and then from the bank in the Philippines, converted into cash and then the cash goes into the casinos. And the idea of that is, as your money laundering folks will know, you know, break the connection between the cash and the crime. So they went to the casino, they started gambling. As you say, the casinos in the Philippines weren't regulated by money laundering regs at the time. The Philippines saw a gap in the market for casinos, obviously a lot of interest in, from Chinese people for gambling, because gambling, casino gambling is illegal in China. So they're looking for places abroad to go gamble. Philippines sees the gap in the market, sets up the casinos, decided a light touch regulation was the way to go. So you can pitch up the casino with your suitcase full of, you know, money and they're not obliged to ask any questions. On the ground, it does work slightly differently. If I turned up, for example, non-Filipino, non-Chinese with a suitcase full of money, they, they, re- they would actually look at that. However, so long as they know you and they, they you know, they, you've had a relationship with them, they're not obliged to do any checks. And what's interesting in the um, uh, Lazarus Heist example is that the people they were using to, to take the money to the casinos had already worked with those casinos. They were casino junket organisers. They'd, they'd organised gambling trips before. So if they turn up with a huge amount of cash, it, it, the suspicions wouldn't be raised by the casino. So what, I don't want to give the impression that casinos were completely blasé about stuff. It's just from a, an actual strict legal point of view, they were not obliged to make any checks. And the reason that got difficult was because when Bangladesh Bank worked out what had happened to its money, it went, where's the money gone? Oh, it's gone to the Philippines, it's gone to the casinos. All right, we'll go to the casinos. There was nothing that legally the casinos could or were, were obliged to do to recover that money. They, they said, well, look, you've got to come with a, with a warrant. You've got to come with some kind of legal case here. But we cannot take the money off these gamblers unless you've got some legal basis for which yeah, for us to do yeah. it. So the casino couldn't take the money off the gamblers or not allow them to gamble through its own money laundering controls. So it was then pushing back on the Bangladeshis and the Filipino authorities say, look, if you want us to do something about this and take the money off these guys, you've got to come to us with something. And obviously the wheels of justice moved very slowly in the Philippines. And so by the time that all happened, uh, and the casino did take action and did actually make some arrests, or did actually go into the hotel rooms and, and, and question these people, the money had already pretty much disappeared. Yeah, and I think, again, it's a big theme in, in our sector of KOCML is that sometimes all the different moving parts just have too much friction. Yes, yeah, to, to, yeah. to go from the alert to the investigation to the next line of defence yeah. to the review to the suspicious activity or transaction yeah. report to the law enforcement mm-hmm. who then have to actually prioritise it. Yeah. It's a lot of time for the, the the criminal networks to to as you say find their escape route or oh, follow yeah. their escape yeah. route. 
Well, um, this is the thing. I mean, the RCBC bank in the Philippines to which the money was sent, I think I'm right in saying it was something like four or five days before the suspicious activity reports got reviewed. Yeah. And I'm just looking at it thinking, that is insane. Have you any idea how, you know, the, the criminals are not thinking about, oh, we've got to follow these processes. They're thinking, get the money and get the money out. Yeah, yeah. If you're having to if take days to process SARs, that, that just seems tailor-made to be taken advantage of by criminals. I don't know whether RCBC have changed that subsequently. I hope they have. But yeah, that was... You're right that the, the 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 pace of of enforcement, the pace of regulation, just to, did not match in that case anywhere near the criminals. I mean, there's a there's an argument to be made, and it's coming to my head now, so we probably won't go too deep on it. We'll have to have a think <laughs> and get someone on to de- debate. Improvise is always the best thing. On a yeah, policy. have someone to come and debate the other side. But every there's always an aim, particularly in sort of fintech, and now banks are sort of on that bandwagon as well. Of less friction, less friction, more yes. speed. Yeah. Speed speed wins. Um, but maybe the limiting factor shouldn't be can you go faster? It's, do you have the capacity to have everything else go faster yes. as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. controls can't keep up. Yeah. Then just because you can enable the uh, experience doesn't mean you should, but yeah. probably some good counter arguments that yes, are, yeah, are yeah. coming into yeah. my mind right now. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll leave that one. The whole casino bit I found fascinating mm. and the fact you mentioned these, they used known gambling junket, I think was the word junket, that phrase, yes, yeah. organisers. So th- these people were not part of the Lazarus group. No but they were part of its network. They had these connections. They didn't necessarily know that this was the North Korean cyber you know, unit. Almost certainly not, no, no. And so the theme of networks comes through again in the Sri Lankan example, which you know, people go read the book for, for all of them and all the details. But how, how important is it that you know, both public sector, private sector identify these, you know, I was thinking of them as the extremities, the yeah. sort of the extreme ends of the networks, the small, potentially the small time crooks, you could argue. How important is that? And do we spend enough time on it, do you think, as, you, as you've done this investigation? It's really interesting. Um, you're right. The, the, the hackers can only work through conduits. So, so once you've hacked and stolen the money, you need to move it somewhere. You know, if I hack into somebody's account, if I transfer the money to Jeff White's account, obviously going to get caught. So you've got, to, you've got to move the money through different accounts. You've got to launder it and so on. Computer hackers aren't necessarily the best at that. Uh, in my experience, yeah, they're very, very skilled at what they do, but they're not money laundering experts. They rely on networks of launderers and fraudsters to do this. The North Korean example is particularly piquant in this, in that North Korea's hackers are are working from either inside North Korea or sometimes over the border in China, but they don't have those on the ground links. They they don't they don't know the casino junkie organisers in the Philippines. They don't know you know the folks in the New York Fed who did it. So they they need those, as you say, the fingers. They need the extremities out there. They need people on the ground uh, doing this. And whilst you could argue, well, you know, arresting those ground level people, you're not getting the kingpin, you're not getting the big fish. The more expensive and time consuming and awkward you make it for the big fish, the less they're going to try and do it. Yeah. So, so yeah. this idea of, you know, you, you, can't, dis- you can't destroy the, the, the operation, but you can degrade it. You can deny it. You can use the other Ds uh, of, de- of, 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 of defence to, to, to take that, 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 that network down. It is depressing, though, to realise that in the entire Bangladesh Bank a case, the only person so far has been convicted at all is the manager of the RCBC bank branch in the Philippines who got 56 years in prison and a fine of, I think, $110 million, which is, of course, more money than was actually allegedly laundered through the bank. Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely uh, astonishing to realise that's the, the one person who's been taken down. But look, targeting these extremities is, is, is definitely useful um, and definitely degrades the network that the, the hackers are using. The problem is, you know, will they just spin up new networks elsewhere? But then you can argue, well, that costs them time, costs them money, oh, so yeah. it's still worth doing. You know? Yeah, you're always, you're always reducing their, uh, well, you're introducing <laughs> friction to yeah. their, their yeah. process. But it's a good point around the bank manager, Aiden, 
from the way you explained it, you know, we're not definitely saying guilty, but it did seem that there was some pressure. There were some odd things that happened, but it was odd that she was the only one that's been um, yes. singled in- out. Investigations are ongoing in the Philippines, let's put it that way, um, because the, the, the lawyer who defended the bank manager said there is no way a simple bank manager could have done all of this on her own without complicity elsewhere. That's an allegation. Hasn't been proven uh, as it stands. I know investigations are still ongoing. So yeah, that's, that's, that's where we stand at the moment, basically. Yeah. And sorry, did I cut you off a moment ago? There's somewhere you wanted to... I was just going to talk about the, 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 the networks, which is really interesting. Looking at them from a cryptocurrency example, which is obviously the direction of travel for North Koreans, but also cybercrime, perhaps more generally. Certainly the allegation against the North Koreans are going after cryptocurrency. What's interesting about that is the amount of on-the-ground network you need is so much less. It's not the case that they're not relying on networks or who are helping them launder the money. There is still those cryptocurrency laundering networks and, and, and people. But I think it's far less labour intensive. You do not need, for example, a crew of 18 people sitting in a casino gambling away your money when you do a cryptocurrency theft. You don't need that on the ground physical presence. You do need people to help you launder, but it's, it's a lot more smoother process. It's a lot less labour intensive. You know, it's the classic technology thing where one of the things, one of the reasons technology companies make money is they don't hire as many people. Yeah. And as a money laundering group, it's like, well, if we use technological means to launder money, we just have to use less people. We don't need people on the ground doing it. So, What, what are your thoughts on crypto in general from your perspective as a cybercrime investigator or crime, mm. let's just say crime, because mm. as we said, it all links together. But you sort of go into that towards the latter quarter of the book mm. a lot more. That's where, as you say, the Lazarus Group has spent some more significant time recently. Yes, yes, yeah. But in general, what are your thoughts on crypto? It's really interesting. Um, it's it's certainly been identified by hackers as a soft underbelly of the financial system. Absolutely. I mean, looking again at the accusations against the North Koreans, the Lazarus Group hackers, uh, the most recent one is the uh, hack on a computer game called Axie Infinity and the Ronin Bridge technology that, that underpinned that game. You're talking about a $625 million theft. So half a billion dollars. I had, honestly, I'd never heard of this game. I, I'm not yeah. a massive gamer, but I'd never heard of this game. And suddenly there's half a billion dollars gone missing from it. Astonishing amount of money. Now think about how much they got from Bangladesh Bank. They spent about a year and a half raiding Bangladesh Bank, probably got away in the end, well, certainly got away with 81 million and then had to pay off quite a lot of that to, to, to sort of middlemen and, and money laundering operatives. So you would have ended up with tens of millions. In one fell swoop on Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge, you've got 625 million. You've got five to six times more than you spent a year and a half getting. So on the one hand, that's a sort of terrifying example. On the other hand, and this is the wonderful thing about cryptocurrency, it's all traceable, all the transactions are traceable. So that's uh, Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge hack money, the 625 million bucks. It's now sitting in Ethereum wallets out on the internet that are the most surveilled Ethereum wallets in the world. Everybody's (laughs) watching those. So then there becomes this sort of attritious warfare of, of trying to launder that money and trying to cash it out. Uh, and you can't take $625 million to an exchange and say, please, can I have yeah. you know, dollars in exchange for this? A, they're not going to do it. They just don't have the liquidity in the system. But B, they're really going to question you about that. So again, there's this long-term laundering process that goes on. So again, going back to that Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge hack, I think 18% or thereabouts of that $625 million has so far been, been laundered. That's still a huge amount of money. It's still over 100 mil, more than they got from Bangladesh Bank. But, but they're having to eke that out over time. The final point I'd make on that is because cryptocurrency generally grows in value, obviously the last couple, last week or so has been a slightly different journey for <laughs> cryptocurrency, but generally, generally it grows in value. Um, and so, yes, it takes time to launder that money and to cash it out. But oh, as the, the longer you take to do that, the more money you're going to end up with in the future. Okay. So the delayed gratification actually mm. is probably, well, in general has been a good thing so far with, since they've been on this trend. I mean, 
person to follow, if there are any listener that doesn't, is uh, Tom Robinson on LinkedIn. He's the mm. co-founder of Elliptic and yes. now chief, I think he calls himself chief scientist or something as a title, but he does a lot of these tracks, trackings. And when there's these hacks or big yeah. public ones, incredible, incredible uh, visualizations of what's yeah. actually happened. And yeah. Yeah. as you say, that is a good part of cryptocurrency. I've said before that it's a forensic accountant's dream Yes, because oh, yes. you can see everything <laughs> yep. um, and don't have to sort of piece it together from random bits of paper. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you, you talked in the book around some of the exchanges that even introduced some initial Mm. Identity, identity verification controls, but they obviously weren't of a good enough standard because yes. sort of a decent fake was making its way through. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. imagine that has since been, they've invested more, they've gone to better vendors, yeah. I would have, would have hoped, as well as having other systems in place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's this great case where um, the Americans were investigating a particular hack, um, managed to work out the cryptocurrency exchange into which the money had been paid. That cryptocurrency exchange had a know your customer system in place where you had to send along a selfie of yourself holding up an ID. So the FBI's are oh, fantastic. You know, we'll go to the exchange, we'll demand the ID, and then we'll have the name and face and address and ID of the person who's laundering the money. Brilliant. Ka-ching. So they contact the exchange. The exchange is compliant, which is interesting for a start. Some aren't, some are. But the exchange says, yes, you know, we'll send you the ID of this person gladly. The FBI gets it. It's um, a, a, a dude sitting in a chair. He's a South Korean guy. He's holding up his South Korean ID. So the FBI, you can imagine the FBI thinking, brilliant, well, this is a guy we'll go after. Then they get the second ID from the second account that gets used for money laundering. It's a white guy sitting in a chair holding up a German ID, but he's wearing the same T-shirt and his fingers on the ID are in exactly the same positions. And you start to look closely and you're like, oh my God, they photoshopped it. <laughs> Basically, they took a different head, put the head on the ID and matched it up. So instantly, of course, the FBI's ability to kind of, you know, find that person and arrest them just disappears because it's a completely fake yeah, account. Yeah, so it's full, full sleeve. So the exchange has put into place that kind of know your customer system, but it's been able to be spoofed super simply. So, so yeah. I mean, we're going to do a series on crypto for this podcast and the risks, regulations, the controls, et cetera. Um, I think, yeah, one of the big lessons, if people weren't already sort of aware, is that KYC is not a checkbox. It is a nuanced yep. thing with with different levels of skill that can be applied, different levels of technology. It's not, I've got something, it's how good is that something? Yeah, yeah. This exactly. is a, so, so, a great case of that. Yeah. So you have, you know, you, for most of your customers, that that know your customer check of send us a selfie with your ID might be fine. I think there's behavioral analytics you can put on top of it. It's like, okay, this person sent through their ID. A, can we run it against all the other IDs and use some recognition software to see has they just have they just cloned the ID and, it, and changed the face? But also beyond that, this person sent us an ID and then within days is washing to huge amounts of money through their account that come from addresses that have been flagged. So there's loads of other stuff you can do on top of just know your customer. It's know your customer plus what is this customer actually doing? How are they behaving? Just going to go back, Jeff, you mentioned some of the Lazarus group would be based in parts of China. Um, can you talk a little bit about China's role in this and, mm. and maybe specifically that I think it's kind of their equivalent of a British overseas territory mm. of Macau. I probably, yes. probably don't, not remember the right phrase, but yeah, if you could t- talk a little bit about China and Macau and how this came up yes. in your investigation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, China's got obviously a long history with, with, with North Korea, um, China and Russia being sort of communist engines, if you like, during the communist era that, that, that had a, an interesting push-me-pull-you relationship with North Korea. You might look at it as kind of a younger sibling relationship, somewhat fractious. But, you know, China still has considerable links with North Korea. Um, investigators who looked at where North Korea is getting its material from have sometimes traced that back to China. So, so there's definitely this interesting sort of political relationship, geopolitical relationship between, between North Korea and China. We also know that, you know, some of the North Korean hackers who, who've been spotted in the end were traveling on Chinese passports. That's apparently quite a common tactic. 
So again, there's this issue about how those passports are issued and the kind of checks China might do on, on, on those individuals. The hackers who've been tracked down by the FBI and who've been the subject to some of their criminal complaints have allegedly been over the border in China. And the reason for that's fairly obvious. I mean, North Korea's got a fairly limited window to the internet, not many IP addresses. They're incredibly surveilled, those IP addresses. So hopping over the border to China makes a lot of sense because you can kind of hide in amongst the crowd. The other thing is that from inside North Korea, it's quite difficult sometimes to get a, a handle on what the internet culture is like. You know, even if, if you're a hacker working for the government inside North Korea, you're allowed access to the general internet. To be a really good hacker and to get those phishing emails correct and to do that kind of social engineering bit, you need to understand how people think. You need to understand how the general internet and Westerners and so on think. And that's quite hard from inside North Korea. So again, another uh, motive for hopping over the border into China is because you're just so much more exposed to the general internet. You just understand it more and that makes you a, a better hacker. So for all those reasons, there have been links with China. Macau is um, special administrative region, so it's similar to, to Hong Kong in that respect. Again, has a long history with uh, North Korea. North Korea has set up operations there, had what some people would describe as front companies, uh, at least one in, in Macau. North Korean spies who've later been caught and have, have, have been interviewed have talked about being trained in Macau. So Macau was, was seen, I think, by a lot of people as a conduit for, for goods and services and people to move in and out of North Korea. Because on the one hand, the country claimed it was sealed off and said, look, we're North Korea. We can make everything that we need to make for ourselves. We will be fully independent. Absolute nonsense. No, no country can exist like that. You needed some way of getting people and goods in and out of North Korea. And the idea is Macau became this sort of conduit for that. And again, there's this sense that although Macau is part of China, in the same way as Hong Kong, it, it, it's regulated with a light touch regulation. So again, there was this idea that by, by working in Macau, North Korea could be both under the aegis of China and to a certain extent protected, but still at liberty to do stuff that within mainland China might have been frowned upon. So Macau became this kind of fringe sort of backroom bar kind of environment, I think, for North Korean operators to, to, to work in is, is the accusation. There's certainly those areas, and I don't want to say, obviously in most places, most people are good people. Um, it's always a minority, or in general it seems to be. Um, but those certain addresses or those regions, potentially higher risk and KYC professionals should be aware of when they're building their models and yeah, look, looking to put controls in place. It is difficult, isn't it? You don't want to sort of tar a whole bunch of people with that brush. But on the other hand, if you have a, you know, if you have a evidence that a region is being used for that kind of criminality, you know, I don't think it's unfeasible to sort of put extra checks on that. Uh, on that. And Macau, I mean, Macau is interesting. It, it um, became obviously, it's a huge gambling hub. It's bigger than Vegas, I think five times bigger than Vegas, which is absolutely astonishing. The really interesting issue with that is obviously a lot of Chinese people go there to gamble because casino gambling is illegal in China. So you hop over the border, you go into Macau, you do that. The problem is if you then get stiffed on your gambling, if you owe somebody money or they owe you money, there's no legal means in China to sort of enforce that. You can't go to the court and say, hey, I want my money back from Buddy here because they'll say, well, it's gambling. You, you shouldn't, that's illegal. You shouldn't have done that. So inevitably your way of recovering funds, and this is one of our interviewees in the podcast makes this point, uh, Mohammed Cohen, you have to resort to criminality to get your money back, to kind of enforce your debts. And so it creates this atmosphere of criminality, which spreads and becomes pernicious. And, and that's the risk, I think, for someone like Macau. Yeah. Well, as you said, all, all crime, that isn't passion, maybe financial crime. <laughs> wanted to, you know, talking about those people that may maybe are violently uh, coerced into to doing whatever they can do, but more generally, the Lazarus group and thefts and crimes they've committed. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about the victims? Because I think you've done a really nice job in the, in the book of sort of bringing us on that journey, that sort of Hollywood thriller yeah, yeah. Um, or, or sort of, uh, you know, caper. Mm -hmm. um, 
but then you're you're able at different points to sort of bring us back to individual people that have been been affected. Yeah. So maybe if you could just sort of share some of the you know, one or two stories or some of the things that you've observed when you've you've gone yeah. to that level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's sort of three levels to that. Number one, there's a sort of macro level, if you like. So Bangladesh lost the 81 million. They haven't got the 81 million dollars back. Now, obviously, 81 million dollars in a in a national context might not strike you as that much money, but it's still 81 million bucks that they lost. And on a more fundamental level, a more philosophical level, trust in institutions in Bangladesh, I think it's fair to say, is low. And when something like this happens, people's trust in the central bank institution diminishes. It, it has a pernicious effect. So you can't even keep our money safe, is the accusation. So, so for a lot of reasons, this has been bad on Bangladesh. And it's not just Bangladesh. I mean, the hackers targeted, same group of hackers are alleged to have targeted multiple different banks, different territories, Vietnam, Argentina, all these different places, Chile. You know, these, these, these are countries where they're struggling for money, they're, they're lower income countries, but also they're struggling for trust in their institutions. And I think that's, when you target institutions, you diminish people's trust in them. That I think is a very difficult to measure effect, but certainly an effect that I, I worry about. So there's those kind of victims. There's individual direct victims, and they're often the middlemen or middlewomen who've ended up involved in this stuff, probably wanting to make a quick buck, frankly, but have ended up involved in something way over their head, and they end up being stamped on we talked about the bank manager in the Philippines, as I say, 56 years in prison she's facing. She was not the only person part of this. I mean, it, you know, there were multiple accomplices in all different sort of places, but she's the person who's been, been got at. Uh, Sri Lanka, there's another woman in Sri Lanka who ended up part of this. Again, seems to have not, not paid a great deal of attention to the people she was working with and the risks of that. But, you know, her life has pretty much been trashed by this. You know, she, she's, she's under investigation. Almost certainly did not realise she was part of a North Korean no. bank heist operation, but has suffered greatly as a consequence. So there's those individuals who get caught up in the gears of the, the legal system. But the other thing I want to point out in terms of victims is, and this goes to one of the stories that cover in the book, the WannaCry cyber attack, which is a ransomware attack, which your listeners will remember May 2017 spread around the world, particularly hit the NHS, particularly badly in the UK. You've obviously got the NHS victims of that, you know, the people whose urgent cancer cases reviews were, were had to be postponed, people's operations had to be postponed. They spent months more being ill and suffering, quite literally. Yeah, <laughs> physical know, pain. Physical yeah. pain because they had to have the, these things deferred, as well as all the stress and attendant problems with that. So there's all those victims. But, but the WannaCry cyber attack hit hundreds of thousands of machines around the world. It caused a huge amount of problems. It, it, you know, the estimates for the damage is four to $8 billion. You know, it's a huge problem. And that was just unleashed indiscriminately. That wasn't because the North Koreans, if indeed it was they behind, them, behind it, wanted to target those 100,000 computers or whatever. They just let the thing go. And, and that's what worries me about the sort of modern face of, of nation state cybercrime is increasingly governments and government hackers are using the organised cybercrime model, which is spray and pray, hit them and hope. Uh, infect everybody, sort it out later. And when you're ending up with a situation whereby government hackers with all their resources and all their skill are infecting as many computers as they can around the world so that they can end up with their few targets they actually want to get to. That's a really worrying development. Potentially any big business then becomes a victim of government hackers. It's strange, isn't it? In a world where militaries talk about targeted missile systems and strategic targets for physical weapons, those that have this very sophisticated code-based quote-unquote weaponry are falling back to a spray-and-pray approach. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that, yeah, there's been a couple of attacks. I mean, WannaCry was one, not Petio was another one. Um, which spread indiscriminately. Stuxnet, you could argue, the one that targeted the Natanz uh, reactor in Iran, was initially very targeted, but then spread more widely. These are all nation-state uh, motivated attacks. There has been, I think, a bit of rowing back from that. I think 
probably not petty was maybe the high point of that. And I think governments have realised if we just unleash this thing and just let it go and we don't control the targeting, A, it's going to get spotted very quickly and stopped, but B, it's going to put us in a difficult position when our fingerprints are found all over it and we're the people who've attributed to. One of the worries, obviously, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that as Russia's pushed further and further out of the international community, it gives increasingly less and less of a damn about the consequences and might be pushed into something like an indiscriminate, not petty, a wannacry type attack. Let the thing go, infect all of them, sod it. That you know, it, it's it, they're outside our country. It won't get back onto our network. You know, that, so there is a concern about that. We haven't seen it yet, and, and hopefully we won't. But. Well, we originally met at the FFE Con last year, and there was a whole session on financial inclusion at the individual level as a means of reducing crime and specifically financial crime. Now, I'm not suggesting that those in power remove the sanctions regime on North Korea, but it's an interesting argument to think about. The more you exclude a country, the more they'll be motivated to find a way. I don't know what the right answer is, but it is interesting. But this this is the interesting thing about the the sanctions going on in Russia at the moment. Slightly out with my area of expertise, but through North Korea, there there is an example there. North Korea is hit with sanctions for its nuclear missile tests. The accusations North Korea's hackers turned to cybercrime to get around those sanctions. They are stealing money by hacking. That's the accusation. And then getting it back to North Korea to avoid the sanctions. That's the whole point. So if you look at Russia and you think, well, you know, the biggest sanctions regime, certainly in recent memory, Russia has a very well-developed cybercrime economy. Yeah. Uh, way more de- developed, I'd say, than North Korea. To what extent will that cybercrime economy now be targeted and used to evade those sanctions and so on? We haven't, interestingly, I don't think we've seen it yet, but it's going to be interesting how that goes. The sanctions are slightly different on Russia. They're, they're on individuals and entities rather yeah. than blanket on North yeah. Korea. But, but it is going to be really interesting to see how that beds in. Yeah, that, that'll be something, again, for our, our listeners and people in our sector to think about, is we did a whole mini-series on sanctions. We didn't cover cyber, although we did cover crypto. We talked about networks. Mm, mm. I think, again, the theme will, will be there. So if... Uh, you're listening, you're thinking about sanctions, maybe consider that point from Jeff. So Jeff, I'm going to wrap up this, uh, this conversation here, but I, I always like to ask guests um, for recommended reading. And obviously this book that I think all of our listeners should go out and check out is The Lazarus Heist. It's out, out on the 9th of June, which is when we'll release this podcast and we'll link right. to it in the show notes. But there any other texts that you would, or, or other resources that you would direct people to that want to learn more about cyber and how it's linked to money laundering and, and crime in general? Um, well, there, there is another book that I wrote called Crime.com, which was, predates this, and that covers the whole of cybercrime. So obviously Lazarus Heist is it's about North Korea, but it's also about the money laundering networks and so on. Crime.com covers the full survey, goes into the sort of history of Russian hacking and how that kind of came to fruition. Also talks about things like Stuxnet, the, the attack on the Iranian nuclear facility. So, so that kind of covers the, the ground. There, there is a whole bunch out there, and actually there's a reading list at the back of Crime.com. There's a few books. One I would recommend is Countdown to Zero by Kim Zetter, which is a talks about the, the Stuxnet attack and how that worked. Absolutely forensic, absolutely superb book. Um, and again, goes into this way of the thing we talked about in terms of targeting, how you target cyber attacks, the extent to which they can be targeted uh, and what goes wrong when they aren't targeted. So yeah, really, really amazing book. That's it. Well, we'll link to all of those in the show notes. And yeah, the only other thing I have to say is thank you so much for coming in and congratulations on, on the book. It's a, a really great read. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, for a first book club episode, I thought that was pretty enlightening. Cyber warfare, theft, AML failures and successes. There was hopefully something for everyone. And hearing Jeff talk to some of the story, I hope gave you a sense of the pace of the book and the lessons we can all take from it. 
Remember, the book is out on the 9th of June and you can find a link to it in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and have a book you'd love for us to cover, then please get in touch with podcast at moody's.com. We'll see what we can do. As mentioned during this episode, we're in the midst of making our crypto mini-series, where we'll be looking at the risks, regulations, and mitigation strategies surrounding the world of virtual currencies. Until then, thanks for listening, and a big thank you again to Jeff coming on, and to producers Caroline Waters and Mark Grundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.